God cares deeply about our attitude, and the truth is that often our attitude could use some adjustment. Even in the best of circumstances, a good attitude does not come naturally. But we can replace complaining with thanksgiving, covetousness with contentment, criticism with love, and adjust our attitudes to honor Him. In this study, Lord, change my attitude. Based on the Israelites' life in the wilderness, we will learn how our attitudes can keep us in the wilderness or allow us to enjoy the blessings of the promised land. In the middle of a study that we're, is titled, Lord Change My Attitude. Some of you look at this title, this cover here, and you say, haven't we done that before? Yes, we've done it in small group. But the impact and the message of this book, of the study of the book of Numbers, where the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, deserves a larger platform. It deserves to be a part of the DNA of who we are and what we do here at Mount Zion Baptist Church. So, Last week we talked, well the first week we talked about a complaining attitude. And we said that the antidote to a complaining attitude was an attitude of gratitude. Now, let me do something here. Let me define the word for you, attitude. Attitude is a pattern of thinking developed over a long period of time. So, as a child, my mom would have put Brussels sprouts in front of my, on my plate and said you had to eat them. And I tried them, and I didn't like them. And so I began to develop an attitude about Brussels sprouts. It's an attitude that I carry with me today. Over a long period of time, I have said, I don't like Brussels sprouts. I'm with you. Can I get a witness? Yes. But that didn't just happen. I'm with you. That didn't just happen. It started over a long period of time. And you want to know the truth? I don't know if I like Brussels sprouts or not. Because to be honest, I developed an attitude that said, you can put it in front of me, but I ain't going to eat it. Now, there have been some things recently that I cut into that I didn't think I liked. That I was like, that ain't half bad. An attitude, a pattern of thinking. You see, it can happen about money. It can happen about other people. It can happen about different lifestyles. It can happen about different things, about sin. I have developed an attitude about the Bible. You know, I read the Bible, but I don't understand the Bible. And since I don't understand the Bible, I'm not going to read the Bible because obviously the Bible is not understandable. And we really don't know because it's like Brussels sprouts. We haven't tried. We can develop an attitude about our spouse. Trey, you did get that haircut, didn't you? Man, that looks good. Trey accidentally sent me a text and said, think I'm going to go get a little trim. He didn't mean to send it to me, but I got it. Now I'm looking back there, dog, boy, you look good. Yeah, you do. Go ahead. Yeah. He's got a job interview tomorrow. Yeah. 11 o'clock. We can be praying for that. Chastity, you have one too, right? 10.30. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. We were talking about what? Attitudes. Pattern of thinking developed over a long period of time. 
And we develop these thoughts and we say, well, it can't be or it won't be or it's not good and it can't be good. And we really don't know because we never stepped over into it to see what it was. Well, that's an attitude. And what we're saying is, Lord, take the attitudes that we have that are not pleasing to you, the things that we've developed over a long period of time, and God, would you sift us? Would you sift those attitudes through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through prayer? And God, if those attitudes are not consistent with you, then we want to change them. In fact, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Numbers. And I want to tell you what God thinks about attitudes. In the book of Numbers, in verses 26 through 29. Oh, that's important, ain't it? Thank you for asking. Numbers 14. Numbers 14, verses 26 through 29. You see, in this journey, we've got a man named Moses. Moses is leading the people. And we've got, in this story that they began to develop some attitudes. In fact, we're going to see that there's five of them. Five attitudes that kept them in the wilderness, that caused them not to be able to see, a generation of them not to be able to see the promised land. We've looked at attitude one, it's complaining. Today we'll look at attitude two, and it's called um, covetousness. Complaining was expressing dissatisfaction with the circumstance and not being willing, not be willing to do anything to correct it myself. But let's go. Numbers 14, verse 26. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. Now you say Moses and Aaron. Remember, God came to Moses at the burning bush and said, I want you to do this. And Moses gave him all the excuses It said, Finally, he said, Lord, in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, from about 3.11 to 4.16, he said, Lord, I've not been eloquent neither recently, and I haven't been eloquent in times past. And so you send somebody else. And it says the anger of the Lord burned against Moses because Moses finally looked and said, um, I am not going to do that. And because he said, I'm not going to, To do that, he brought Aaron into the picture. And he said, Aaron will be your mouth, and Moses, you'll be a God to him. And so the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complains against me? Circle that. Complains against me. I have heard the complaints. Circle that. Which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you the carcasses of you who have complained, circle that, against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. So God is so concerned with our attitudes and wanting those attitudes to be attitudes that are pleasing to Him, that if we fall into the habit of being a people who are complainers, murmurers, do it with me now, murmur, 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 I mean, can you imagine two million people complaining? God said, I am so sick of you complaining. I am so sick of you griping against the fact that I actually sent Moses over here into Egypt to get you out of slavery, 
to deliver you from Egypt over into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, it's not a very long journey. But because you're griping and complaining, and now you're going to be in the wilderness, and you're going to wander. And finally he got so fed up, some of you ain't even going to make it. He said, so much so that I'm just going to kill you. Guys, we have got to look at our attitudes. We have got to look and say, where am I going? Because we said complaining was something that God was against. And the, the word complaining is an overarching word, but it's also a specific word that the people were complaining against God for what He had done. We said that the antidote to complaining was gratitude. To show that a kindness received is valued. In other words, rather than the children of Israel murmuring about the fact that they had to make a little short journey from Egypt over into the promised land about the conditions of their trip, they should have been going, God, we are free. God, we have been delivered by your mighty and righteous hand. We have been taken from this place and we're going to be placed over there. Now you listen to me. That is an analogy. We When we are in our trespasses and sin, we are in Egypt. We are slave to sin. We are slave to Satan. We are slave to him. And when Jesus went and died on that cross at Calvary, he came to deliver us from bondage and to set us free over into the New Testament promised land. He came to give us victory. And so much of the time when we're on our journey to Christ's likeness and ultimately our journey to eternal life in heaven with God as a joint heir of Christ, we get into the, God is not what I want. God, I don't like it. We begin to go mur, 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 mur. And in the middle of the murmuring, we're missing what God is doing in us, through us, around us. We miss how He is guiding us and protecting us and delivering us. We get so caught up in the moment that we fail to say, God, show me the big picture. Because he said, I, the one who began the good work in you, is faithful to complete it. He said in Romans 8, 28, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. No, he did not say that. He said, I am causing all things to work together for the good of those who love the Lord. And are called according to his purpose. He said that other thing too. He just didn't say it in Romans 8, 28. All right. I didn't make that up. Um, He said, I'm causing. And so we we are in Egypt. He has rescued us. We're walking. And if there's a little pothole in the road, we begin to complain. God, why'd you put a pothole in my life? And you see, it becomes an intersection of wills. Bobby, would you help me? Just a second. All right, come help me. All right. You're going down. I'm going to let you be sin, okay, because I want to be righteousness. All right. <laughs> All right, you stand right there. All right, you stand here. All right, in just a moment. And so we're on a path. All right, you start walking. All right, we're on a path, and there is going to be a collision. Now, to avoid a collision, you can sit down. To avoid it, thank you. Y'all give him a hand. Woo. To avoid a collision, that means we're going to have to yield. 
we're going, somebody in this process is going to have to yield. And God says, what I want you to do is yield to my righteousness. Yield to my holiness. Yield to my sovereignty. Yield to the fact that I really am God and I really do know what's best for you. And Satan is saying, oh, he doesn't know what's best for you. Remember back in the garden, did God really say? And God says, I know what's best for you. And I want you to grasp it. And I want you to trust me. And I want you to yield to your sin nature and embrace the nature of righteousness. It's this verse we talked about. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live I, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And I can tell you this, that every time I have asserted my will and my way over God's will and God's way, I have lived to regret it over and over and over and over. Now this is what I have to believe. The best predictor of how I would feel the next time is that there would be that same thing. But I can tell you this, that every time that there has been a surrender of my will to the surrender of God's will, while it may not be pleasant in the very moment, I have never regretted it in the long run. God says, I am faithful. God says, you can trust me. God says, I will walk you from Egypt. I will walk you into the promised land. I will take you to the place flowing with milk and honey. And so that is kind of the the premise of where we are. And so we looked at complaining and said God doesn't like it. We looked at gratitude and said that this is what God wants us to replace it with. Well, I want us today to look at the second wilderness attitude. The second wilderness attitude that will cause us to live and stay in the wilderness. And that is covetousness. Now covetousness, I would love to give you like three or four words and say that this is what covetousness is. But I can't. Because it's many things. And the first thing that we would see about covetousness, and you can follow me in your outline, is that covetousness is wanting the wrong things. Wanting something that the Word of God says is wrong. Directly wrong or indirectly wrong. At that moment that I come to that intersection and God says, this is the way I want it. And I say, God, I don't want what you want. God, I want what I want. And by goodness, there we go. By goodness, I'm going to have my way. That's covetousness. And it's wanting something that is wrong. But not only is covetousness wanting something that is wrong, covetousness is wanting the right thing for the wrong reason. A right thing, but I want it for the wrong reason. I'll give you an example. Have y'all ever heard of or know what the Blue Willow Inn is? It's a restaurant in social circle. Um, It's good it's a little expensive but it is very good and they have built a reputation of southern food well on this side of the road is the blue willow inn on the other side of the road is a replica of the house of the blue willow inn they were sisters 
the Blue Willow Inn is a pretty big house. But the house across the road that belonged to the sister is 18 inches wider and 18 inches deeper. Because she was going to have a bigger house than her sister did. It's not wrong to have a house. It's not wrong to have a spacious house. It's not wrong to have a house that you like and enjoy. That's a right thing. But when you're building your house just 18 inches bigger and wider and 18 inches deeper just so you can look at your sister and say, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. That's a right thing for the wrong reason. It's to feel elevated. It's to, to position yourself above somebody else so that they feel less. God says, that's covetousness. And God said, that is an attitude that I don't like. But you see, covetousness is not just wanting the wrong thing or the right thing for the wrong reason. Covetousness is wanting right things but at the wrong time. I want the right thing, I just don't want it at the right time. Have you ever heard the phrase, the early bird gets the worm? but the second mouse gets the cheese? Think about it. The first mouse got the... And the second mouse came up there and got the cheese. It's all about timing, right? It wasn't wrong for that first mouse to want cheese, but he needs to be smart enough to know that the trap's still set. That's pretty profound. There are a lot of things that we want in life that maybe even the Word of God said was a good thing. But we want it out of His timing. Have you ever heard of a new product that was available and you thought, I just got to have it? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's a piece of technology. Whatever your passion is. Whatever your passion is, something new has been created. And you want that thing. And you go to your bank account and that thing costs $100. And you look in your bank account and you got $74.26. And you said, I ain't got enough money. But I got to have it. So you look in your pocket. And you say, man, Chase just sent me a credit card. And it's got $100 left on it before I hit my maximum. And I want that thing so much. Maybe it's the right thing. But it's the wrong time to want it when you got to whip out the credit card. Because now the scripture says that the one who's in debt is enslaved to the debtor. Don't you think at Mount Zion Baptist Church right now we can know that better than anybody? Because every month we're saying, God, provide. God, we got to have $8,000. It's wanting the right thing, but it's wanting it at the wrong time. And man, there's so many applications to that in life and relationships and, and finances and I don't know, you, you go on, you can make your list. But also, it's wanting the right thing 
in the wrong amount. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that it is good for a man to provide for his family. Now, that's not a quote, okay? That's a summary of it. So, for a man to want to wake up, or a woman, a person, to want to wake up in the, in the morning and say, I'm hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work I go. You know, it's, I'm going to work because I want to provide for my family. Not because I want to get up early and fight traffic and all of these kind of things, but I want to provide for my family. But, how much is enough? You see, there are people that have had all of their needs met. I called a man recently, um, and, I, and I, I knew that there was a need somewhere, and I knew there was an abundance somewhere else, and we had a conversation, and, the con- and it was something like this. I got to look after my family. I can't worry about that. Now, again, it's not wrong to look after your family. But when God has richly and abundantly supplied your needs and he has blessed you with excess, he blesses you with excess not to become a hoarder and not to become a reservoir, but to become a river through which blessings flow. And God says that when you call something or allow something to become greater than me, ahead of me, And you're wanting that more than you're wanting me. Now you are coveting. And he says, don't do it. And that's what's going to happen here. Let's go back to the book of Numbers. But this time, let's go to chapter 11. And we're going to read in verses 4 through 10. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Um, And so, I'm going to read it to you. It says, now. Now, what's the now? God has already found people whose heart did not belong to him. He's already caused fire to rain down on them. There have been people killed because of their wilderness attitude of complaining and murmuring. And he says, now the mixed multitude. Now what does the mixed multitude mean? It means that they married outside of the faith in God. Doesn't, I don't know if they were... Samaritan, I don't know if they were this, I don't know if they were that, but what it means is that somebody who was God's chosen people married somebody who worshipped another God. It says, now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. The Hebrew means they craved a craving. In other words, they wanted that thing so much that they were willing to say no to anything else. It says, now the mixed multitude among them, yielded to an intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its color like the color of bedillium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. 
And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout, their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses was also displeased. So here's the picture. God said, on this journey, I am going to provide for you. I have what you need. And the people on the journey, shortly into the journey, decided that they didn't like what God was providing. And so they began to covet other things. They wanted something else. And so the first thing that we'd see about covetousness is covetousness becomes sin when we yield. When does a craving become a sin? It's not a sin to have a desire pop into my head. It becomes a sin when I yield to the desire. It's kind of our cars at the intersection over here talking about that. We've got to yield to us. Our idea of going to the mall and charging it. It says that they yielded to their craving. It says that that no matter which tent that Moses went to, that there was somebody at the door of the tent crying. Y'all remember how many people there were who marched out of Egypt? Two million, roughly. That's a lot of people crying. And it wasn't just one, but one began to covet. And one began to covet because the other one coveted. And pretty soon peer pressure came on. Man, if you were satisfied with what God had provided, then you were not cool. And so they began to cry. And they began to weep. And so covetousness becomes a sin when we yield to it. You go back and forth in your mind. Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. I can't. I won't. Ooh, I just did. Now listen to me. Sin doesn't just happen. Most all the time. It becomes when we covet, begin to covet something. And when we begin to covet something, we put it in our mind and say, Oh, that would be good. Oh, that would be all right. That would be this and that would be that. And we begin to, to yield in our mind. And when we yield in our mind, it's only a matter of time before we yield in our life. And that's why that God would say that He wants the mind that has stayed on Him. To resist the devil and flee temptation. He he knows that our mind is powerful. He knows that our mind can control us. So number two. Covetousness and why God hates it. First of all, covetousness becomes sin when we yield. Covetousness becomes sin when we dwell on the desire. Yielding is only a matter of time. That's the second point. Go back to verse 4. Now the multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel wept and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Dwelling on the desire leads to the inflating of the past. Now you remember, you remember these people were slaves in Egypt. They, have, they may have cooked meat. 
They may have sliced cucumbers. They may have served melons. But more than likely, because they were working 24-7 making bricks, and remember it said that they even ramped up the pace and said, you got to do more. There wasn't a time to prepare a buffet of gourmet food. It was grab something on the go and eat it. When we begin to dwell on the past, when we begin to start to yield to sin, we begin to inflate what really was. Have you ever done it? Have you ever one morning woke up on your way to work and said, Man, I wish I was back in college. You know what I'm talking about? Man, I wish I was back in high school. I didn't have to worry about anything back there. And man, life was good. And if you had social media back then, you know, you'd be tweeting, hanging out at the square with the friends and doing all this stuff. And we began to inflate how fun that was. Or you remember that big night of drinking and man, that was such a great time. I've got, I'm just going back and do that again. You inflate that moment and you forget you woke up the next morning Hugging the porcelain God. Throwing up. We begin to forget. We begin to crave. We begin to yield. That was an illustration that Russell told me, by the way. (laughs) I don't know anything about waking up hugging the porcelain God. (laughs) So thank you, Russell. Credit goes. Yeah, in Turabian style, yes. <laughs> desire leads to making a list of them. Dwelling on the desire leads to inflating the past. The problem was that they inflated it and didn't remember it correctly. Remember, coveting is dwelling only something um, for a matter of time. And we're there and we start to dwell on it. We discount with how falsely we remember the, 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 the thing We don't look at it accurately. You say, well, how can that even happen? Because Satan is the master deceiver. He will disguise himself as whatever you need him to be to cause you to take your eyes off of Jesus and put them on him. That means he can be 36, 24, 36. That means he can be brawny. That means he can be smart. That means he can be flashy. That means he can be fierce. That means that he can be a protector. He can do a lot of things and he will take our mind off of Jesus. At the root of covetousness, number three, is a rejection of God's sufficiency. When I want something that God said, this is for you. And I don't yield to the sin nature. And I, or I, yield, I won't yield to the sin nature and I yield to righteousness. I say, righteousness, get out of my way. It's rejecting God. Go down to verse 6. But now our whole being is dried up. What are they saying? God, we can't even live on what you've provided. God, we can't live on this because it's not enough. We're weak. We've got to march out here in this wilderness and all you're giving us is some bedillion colored 
cakes that have olive oil in it. And God, they won't make me strong. And my stomach is growling. And God, I'm, I'm hungry. God, I'm hangry. God, it ain't working. And God, you told us if we walked out here with you, you would be enough. And God, you ain't enough. And what you gave me is not enough. I'm doubting the sufficiency of God. The children of Israel are not remembering where the manna came from. It's not meeting our need. Verse 10 says that the dwelling on it and the the insufficiency, the belief in the insufficiency of God led to them weeping in their families. And it caused the anger of the Lord to burn against them. God got angry. Moses wanted to know why God was upset. But I want to show you something. Because I think this is worth our time. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 16. Verse 4. You say, what's the big deal? Why couldn't God have made it a a drive up where they could go order a number one or a number two? Because go to Exodus 16. And I'll start reading in verse 3. But I want to focus on verse 4. It says, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. Ooh. You see, God didn't just arbitrarily look and say, we got a whole lot of coriander-looking, bedillion-colored stuff in heaven. We need to get rid of it, so why don't we cause it just to rain down on those people? No, God said, this is what I'm going to give them, and I'm going to give them this to test them to see if they will trust in my sufficiency. And when God began to give it to them, the people began to say, God, it's not enough. And the the byproduct of God, it's not enough because it came from God, is God, you're not enough. And if it's not enough and God's not enough, then I've got to go look for what is enough. And here's the problem, it won't ever be God. And now I'm into idol worship. And you say, well, this is what I make. God... Why do you have me here? God, what are you doing? What are you wanting to teach me at this moment? It's not wrong to want more. Just want it for the right reason. It's not wrong to have more. Just use it to honor God. It's not wrong to be in the middle of a circumstance and say, God, have mercy on me. It's all in the Bible. But while you're in there praying, God, have mercy on me, God, show me why we had to make this stop. And God, if we had to make this stop in life, then God, will you show me how to glorify you while I'm in it? God was testing. Will they trust him? I mean, think about it. Without God, they were still in slavery. But with God, they had been set free. Would they accept God's provision for them or would they covet more and better and different? And I think this is, this is a place we get. They never said they didn't want God. I mean, that would be cut and dried and easy. Oh, you wretched Israelites, you didn't want God. They never said they didn't want God. 
They just said, God, we want you and more. You see the danger of that? It's not, oh God, I just completely turned my back on you. I cover my head from you. No, it's God, I want you and all your blessing and all your benefit. But God, I want you and and this thing too. And God says, I'm jealous. I'm holy. There shall be no other gods before me. And you see at the moment that we make it God and, we might as well reject God completely. Will we accept God and His provision or His valley or will we continue to push? Thanks for the man of God but I want God you, the manna and this. So We've seen them complain. We've seen them reject God's provision. Now, let's go back over to this book of Numbers. Chapter 11. In verse 31. Now, let me catch you up just a second. They, they complained. They rejected. God told Moses to call 70 elders together and that he would tell them what to do. And ultimately, this is what God said. I've heard their cry. And I'm going to give them meat to eat. That sounds pretty good, right? They cried out, hey, God, I'm hungry. And I don't, I'm tired of the bread. Can you put some meat with this bread? And that's like, man, God, you're awesome. But let's keep going. Because now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side. So how far could you walk in a day? Anybody? I don't know. If you you get on the treadmill, they tell you to walk four miles an hour. And in the Bible, a day is considered 12 hours in the day part of it. And so I guess 12 times 4 is... Somewhere between 30 and 50 miles, whatever, whatever pace you walk. But somewhere in that distance. Because they didn't have bikes, they didn't have scooters, they didn't have cars. So they had to walk. So anyway, somewhere about a day's journey out from the camp, there were these quail flying in from the sea. On the other side, all around the camp. So they encircled it. And about two cubits, so that's about three feet above the surface of the ground. So... It doesn't tell us if they were three feet deep or if there was like single file birds flying around a camp. I don't think it matters because either way it's a miracle. Would you agree with me? That these birds assembled out of nowhere and started flying around two million people. So that's what's happening. And it says that, um, what did it say? It said here, on the other side about a day's journey, on the other side all around the camp, about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all day, that's 12 hours, all night, that's 12 hours, and all day, the next day, that's 12 hours. So for 36 hours, these 
people are about a day's walk outside the camp catching quail. And I mean, they're flying by and they're like, I got one. Here comes another one. Boom, I got him. And it says that they began to collect them. And it says in that, and they gathered the quail, and he who gathered the least gathered ten homers. Now, ten homers is about 60 bushels. That's a whole lot of birds. And that's like the lazy dude. That's like the man that stops every five minutes to get a Cheeto and a snack and says, hold on, i got to go check on something. Then he comes back and he starts gathering birds again. So everybody else got more than 60 bushels. So Nelson's gone on a hunting trip, a bird hunting trip. And he comes back home from his bird hunting trip and Sue's just patiently waiting in the kitchen with dress and apron and going, I can't wait. And he walks in with this basket of quail. And he says, hi, honey, would you clean this bushel of quail for me? And she says, I would love to. And then he says, well, hold on, there's 59 more in the garage. Can you imagine the number of feathers? Can you imagine? I can tell you this. I have been dove hunting. And going dove hunting, that if the legal limit to kill is 12. And if you kill 12 dove, dove hunting, you can take those 12 dove, and I could hold them in my hand like this. All of them. If I drop that into a bushel, I might cover the bottom. And you know how bushel is, right? It goes like this. So it's going to take more. Well, think about this. God says, this is what I'm going to do. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a great plague. So he called the name of that place, Kibroth Hataava, because they buried the people who had yielded to the craving. God said, I'm looking for a remnant of people whose heart will belong to me. And he said, these first people complained and weren't going to get on board. They're not part of my remnant. This second group of people complained and they're not going to get on board. And they're not my people. And God is continuing to look for a group of people that he can take over into the promised land. And as we get there, we wind up at Numbers 14. He said, ain't none of y'all going to follow me. So all y'all are going to die here in the wilderness. Ladies and gentlemen, God is giving us a plea. He is giving us an opportunity. He says to us, I am God and I am sufficient. Will you abandon your complaining? Will you abandon your covetousness? Will you abandon your sin nature? This thing that in you, it, even though it was defeated, not eradicated, and it can rise up at any moment. Will you abandon that? Will you embrace the righteousness, the life that I now live? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Will you come to me? Will you trust my way? Lord, will you take me to the place 
where I want the thing, where I don't want the thing more than I want you. You're all I want. You're all I need. God, will you take me to that place? And you say, oh, I've given God that place. Well, you can't give God that place one time. You give God your heart one time. Salvation comes one time. But the crucified life comes every day. And sometimes every moment. And sometimes even every minute. And if you're like me, sometimes it comes every second. Lord, it's the crucified life. Lord, I'm going to do it your way. God, I die to this thing and I want you more than I want it. So what are the results of covetousness? If you're a covetous person, enough is never enough. And the people stayed up all day, all night, and the next day. So much so that the lazy man had 60 bushels. It says, then they spread them around the camp. Now, remember, they were in the wilderness. They were in the desert. It was hot and dry. What do you think those quails smell like on about day three? And then what do you think on about day four or five when you walked by and you thought, something's crawling in and out of that quail's eyeballs. That's nasty, ain't it? Speaking of throwing up, yes. But when you are a covetous person, enough is never, ever enough. If you're a covetous person, it can destroy you. Look at verse 33. But while the meat was between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord aroused, and the Lord struck people with a very great plague. If you have a little, it doesn't make you not covetous. And if you have a lot, it doesn't make you covetous. It's what you do with it. And how you look and your perspective on God with it. Ted Turner was interviewed. And Ted Turner is one of the richest men that we would have known in our time. And they asked someone to ask him about his wealth. And was he satisfied? He said, oh no, I always look at the list of richest people and I want to see who's next so I can take them down. He wanted to be up the list and up the list and up the list. When is enough enough? If you're a covetous person, It angers God. That goes back to verse 33. The wrath of the Lord was aroused. Verse 11 um, or verse 10, it says that the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. So Lord, cause us not to be complainers. Cause us to trust you. Cause us to trust your sufficiency. Lord, make us satisfied with what you've given us. And God, anytime you give me more, my first question will be, how can I honor you with it? More knowledge? How can I use it to the glory of God? More health? God, how can I use it to serve you better? More food? Lord, do I need to share it with somebody? More clothes? 
God, surely is there somebody out there that doesn't have what I have? Because I know this 92 pair of shoes I got, I'm going to wear them all this week. Yeah. Lord, who could I share it with? More money? Lord, how do I honor it? You see, at some point in life, it doesn't become about the 10%. It becomes about, God, here it is, and how can I use it most for you? was reading about a man that God had richly blessed. And all his life he had been a giver of 10%. And he said one day God told him, you know, you can live really well on, the, on 10% of what I give you. So what I want you to start doing is you keep 10 and give me 90 And he had a great argument with God. He was like, no, Lord, this is my money. And God said, no, it's my money. And 10% of what I provide for you will let you live beyond anything that you need. And he said he surrendered his will to the Lord. And he said it was the greatest day of his life. It's not about 10 and 90. It's about obedience. It's about trusting God. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians, these things were given as an example to us so that we would not repeat what the children of Israel did. God recorded it down to the color of the bread so that we would be able to look and to see, hey, here's some people that did it wrong and this is the outcome. Certainly we don't want to do it that way. But sin and sin nature will will rear up and every day we must die. Lord, that's your word. It's a harsh word. I mean, it's a, Twice in this story, you've told us that people were eradicated because of disobedience and disbelief. And God, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly in your power and in your right to eradicate us. And you may not choose to do that. Your choice may be to get our attention through depression or our attention through displeasure or our attention through strife or health or heartache. But God, either way, it's the wilderness. And as long as you're teaching us, we have a chance to be repentant. We have a chance to be the remnant that says, we will follow the Lord. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more, to listen to messages and teaching from Pastor Chris, to contribute through online giving, please visit our website at www.mzbc.org. Thank you for supporting Mount Zion, where you are welcome, wanted, and needed.